the faith of our fathers. Today, we feature Vance Havner. He was born in 1901 in Jugtown, North Carolina. Through his ministries, Dr. Havner maintained a love for the quiet and simple ways of his more rural past. Eventually, Protestant leaders from many denominations would call Havner the Dean of America's Revival Preachers. We now listen to a rally recorded in 1967 from Ruggles Street Baptist Church in Boston. Vance Havner asks, what is the future of the church? to return to the good fellowship of this church. It seems a little unusual to have a rally in a museum, <laughs> but why not? Museums guard the treasures of the past, and we too are custodians of a great heritage. I am from Charleston, South Carolina. The old First Baptist Church is the oldest Baptist church in the South. I told them at Park Street Congregational years ago up here that uh, you can't uh, put Baptists out of business because William Screven was run out of Massachusetts and came to Charleston in 1683 and started the First Baptist Church, which is the mother church of the Southern Baptist convention. I used to stand in that quaint old sanctuary and tell my people <clears throat> they were not caretakers of a museum or comrades in a movement. Religious enterprises often run a sort of a course in four stages, a man, a movement, a machine, and a monument. Some churches are not so much like museums, they're like mausoleums. The service starts at 11 o'clock sharp and ends at 12 o'clock dull. <laughs> I read some time ago, the town clock struck Sunday noon and the church gave up her dead. <laughs> there are others that are not so much like mausoleums as they're like menageries. They're supposed to be sheep foes, but I've been in some that were more like zoos. You know, the Bible compares us to a good many animals, and just between you and me, some of the comparisons are not very complimentary. The Bible says don't be like a mule, for instance. A mule is usually backward about going forward, and a great many of the saints are like that too. Then we're told concerning false teachers about sows wallowing in the mire, that's not very complimentary either. So we need to brush up on our Bible zoology. You have a great heritage in Ruggles Street. You had a pastor back in the early 1900s who came from the adjoining county to mine in North Carolina. And I preached when I was a boy in the churches that his father had pastored uh, long before that time. Your pastor was A.C. Dixon, who went later to Spurgeon's Great Church in London. So uh, we have something in common. 
But of course we can't spend our time at the graves of the illustrious departed who served their generation by the will of God. You remember that God said to Joshua, Moses, my servant is dead, now therefore what? Uh, sit up with the corpse? No. Arise, go over this Jordan. What is the future of the church today? We're living in times so queer, so weird, that there is no adequate word in Webster's Dictionary to describe them. Some time ago, my wife and I were taking a bus trip through the mountains of Virginia, and the bus broke down right in front of a typical hillbilly mountain grocery store. There was a woman there who hadn't been anywhere else, I think. <laughs> and my wife said, I don't, believe, I don't believe that poor soul knows what's going on in the world. And I said, well, don't tell her. <laughs> I wouldn't want her to know, let the poor soul die in peace. Living as we are in a civilization that's gone crazy with the inmates trying to run the asylum, we seriously need to ask, what is the future? What is the future for the church? Is it world conversion? Certainly not. God never started out to convert the world. God started out to take out a people for his name. When he gets through taking them out, he'll take them up. Are we to sit with folded hands waiting to be rescued from this predicament by the Lord's return? No. The resurrection chapter after that matchless discourse on our blessed hope of the life to come winds up, as you very well know, saying let us be steadfast in the work of the Lord, always abounding in the work of the Lord, abiding and abounding, static and dynamic. Abide in me, much fruit. Both sides, abiding and abounding. So we're going to be gathered out first, and then we're going to be gathered up. And our Lord said in Matthew 12, 30, and this is a missionary verse that I've never heard used in connection with missions, and I don't understand why. He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. We're in business with him. And by the way, there's no such thing in the light of this text as an inactive church member. There never has been an inactive church member because if you're not gathering, you're scattering. But either is activity. And if you are not drawing people to Jesus Christ some way or other, you are by your very inactivity that way driving people away from my Lord. There isn't any such thing as an inactive church member. Now you notice our position first and then our practice in that text. First our position, with me. It is stated negatively. He that is not with me is against me. Dead with Christ. Crucified with Christ. Risen with Christ. Hid with Christ. Joined heirs with Christ. We have to be gathered to him before we can gather with him. We have to be with him in the heavenlies before we can be for him down here in the earthlies. And my Lord is the great gatherer. He's the gatherer of Israel. How many times in the Old Testament do you find that word gathering in connection with Israel? And my Lord himself said, How oft would I have gathered thy children together as a hen gathereth her chickens under a wing, and ye would not. And then you remember that Jacob said unto him, Shall the gathering of the people be? 
And Caiaphas said he shall gather in one the children of God that are scattered abroad. He's going to be the upgatherer of the saints, uh, Matthew 13, 30, when he gathers the wheat into the barn. He will send his angels and gather the elect from one end of heaven to the other, Matthew 24, 31. Then he's the outgatherer of all things that offend, Matthew 13, 41, 42. That will really be the cleanup job for the institutions of this world when he sends his angels to take it over. And finally, Ephesians 1.10, the gatherer of all things in Christ. So you have the rejected, but the final gatherer of Israel. You have Christ, the gatherer of the Gentiles. You have Christ, the gatherer of the church. You have Christ, the upgatherer of the saints. You have Christ, the outgatherer of all that offends. And Christ, the final gatherer of all things to himself. That's great business. And we are gatherers together with him. John 17 tells us in that high priestly prayer of our Lord that we have been saved out of this world, that we're still in the world, but we're not of the world. But we've been saved out of the world to go right back into the world to win other people out of the world. And that's the only business we have in this world. And it's all set forth in John 17. But I'm not preaching mere activism. We are beset with that in some churches today. Religious Busyness, beloved, is not necessarily the Father's business. You can be a veteran in church work and be an amateur in spiritual experience. It takes more than mere human ability to do the work of God. Just because a lawyer is a good talker does not of itself qualify him to teach a Bible class. <clears throat> and just because a banker handles money all week does not of itself qualify him to handle money in the church. And just because some soloist has a degree from a conservatory doesn't necessarily qualify her to sing in church. <clears throat> she may sing so highly les palms couldn't sing bass to it. But if she doesn't sing to the glory of God and filled with the Spirit, she sings in vain. You just don't run a church like you run the PTA, or the Chamber of Commerce, or a department store. God's business must be done by God's people, God's way. One of my favorite writers was A.W. Tozer, now with the Lord. A.W. Tozer was a prophet. He often said things in a fashion to shock you in order to get your attention. And he said the popular notion that the first obligation of the church is to spread the gospel to the uttermost part of the earth is false. Her first obligation is to be spiritually worthy to spread. <clears throat> Our first business is not evangelism, beloved. It's not missions. Our first business right now is to get ready to evangelize and to get ready to be missionaries. We're not ready. My Lord said, go ye, but he said, tarry ye till you're ready to go. One of our teachers in the South says we're developing a massive number of 20th century Pharisees active in religious work without being motivated by the Spirit of God. I don't think our problem today is over-organization. I think it's under-motivation. My Lord did not say that we were to bear witness. He said we are to be witnesses. There's a lot of difference between bearing witness and being a witness. You can go out and talk it and not have it. We are to be something. We have too many noun Christians who are not adjective Christians. You know, the word Christian is both a noun and an adjective. We say so-and-so is a Christian, that's a noun. We say he's a Christian man, that's an adjective. 
But we have so many noun Christians who need to become Christian Christians. More Christian in conduct and in life. It has been said that any other business that uses as much raw material and turns out as poor a product as the church does today would be out of business. There's no other organization using as much raw material as the churches and turning out as sorry a product by and large. Now, of course, the church needs to go out into the world. I knew that before I ever heard of Bonhoeffer. Some people got excited in the last few years and took a notion we ought to get out and be a worldly church. I mean, in that sense of the word. Well, I've known that ever since my Lord said, as the Father sent me into the world, even so send I you into the world. Certainly, we are not to sit on uh, our benches there at church on Sunday and watch the church staff put on a performance when we ought to be having an experience. I get so tired of these congregations who look like they want to say after the sermon, I move we accept this as information and be dismissed. <laughs> Certainly the church needs to get out into the world. I heard of a man showing a friend over a new church building the other day and he said, you know this place is so insulated you can't hear a sound from the outside. I've been in a lot of churches insulated like that. They never heard the cry of a lost world from the outside. But before you look out the window at the world's need, you need to look in the mirror at your own need. Every Christian needs a mirror and a window in his life. Before you look out at the world's uh, awful condition today, you need to see generally your own condition in the sight of God. I've heard sermons to young people from Isaiah's call trying to get young folks to say, here am I, send me. The tragedy today is we've got too many people who are saying, here am I, when they've never said, woe is me. They've never seen themselves in their own need, first of all, before God. They've never looked in the mirror. This is what James calls the Word of God, a mirror. And they haven't seen their own condition Therefore, they're not ready to see the need of the world or to do anything about it. And that brings us back to the text. He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. We must be rightly related to Jesus Christ first. Follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. There you have it again, position and practice. Well, I read over in Luke 5 that after he had left speaking, he said, launch out into the deep and let down your nets. After the sermon, there came the summons. And after the address came action. Into the deep. We need more deep water Christians. Uh, a ship, it has been said, is safe only in the harbor or out on a deep sea, not in the shallows. I saw a little sign the other day. A ship in the harbor is safe, but that's not what ships are for. And that's not what a church is for either. A church is not meant to be just a harbor where the ships come in. It's meant to be a harbor from which ships go out. It's not only a point of arrival, it's a point of departure. It has been said the gospel is not just something to come to church to hear. It's something to go from church to tell. My Lord said, let down your nets for a draft. In other words, he didn't say let down your nets and maybe we'll catch something. We'll hope. We'll catch something. He said, let them down for a draft. We're going to get something. He expected results. 
We don't need the kind of soul winner that says, well, I didn't catch any, but I influenced a good many. We're supposed to go at it with an expectancy and get out where the fish are. Sam Jones, the Methodist evangelist, used to say, if I was fishing and not catching any fish, I'd change bait or change creeks. Well, certainly we ought to do something about it. And certainly we ought to go after new fish and not just swap church members from one aquarium to another. <laughs> well, you say, I've tried it and failed. That's what Simon said. Master, we have toiled all the night and have taken nothing. Anything that starts with we always ends with nothing when you leave the Lord out of the boat. Has that been your experience? Do I speak to somebody tonight who says, but I've worked, I do work, and I don't take anything. I see no results, no fruit for my labors. Well, what does he say next? Nevertheless, at thy word, I will. Our submission to the word and the will of God will always get results. And they got results. And Peter was overwhelmed by it. My Lord said, Fear not, henceforth thou shalt catch me. We're not ready to launch out into the deep, whether with a new church, or evangelism, or missions, or missionary ventures, until we have confronted the living Christ, and confessed our failure, and bowed in utter submission to his lordship. And that simply means that with me comes before gathering with me. Follow me comes before fishers of men. Abide in me comes before abound. Who art thou, Lord, comes before what wilt thou have me to do. Woe is me comes before send me. The mirror comes before the window. Revival comes before evangelism. I have almost despaired of getting our people down south or anywhere else to see the difference between revival and evangelism. Every time we have a week of meetings, we call it a revival, and sometimes it isn't within a thousand miles of a revival. And the average so-called revival, let's face it, is just a drive for more church members. And we already have too many of the kind that most of them are. Do you realize that the average church member over America is living at such a low ebb you'd have to backslide to be in fellowship? <laughs> the last word that our Lord said to the church was repent, beloved. It was not the Great Commission. And the Great Commission is the marching orders of the church. But the last thing my Lord said to the church is repent. It's the last thing the average church is willing to do. And I think the situation is this. We have reached today the Laodicean stage, affluent, rich, increased with goods, and worst of all, having need of nothing. I'm wearing myself out going up and down the country preaching to people who don't need anything. To churches that don't need anything. They need a plenty, but they don't know it. And uh, Jesus Christ must be a necessity before he's ever a reality. If you don't need him, you won't want him. If you won't want him, you won't invite him. If you don't invite him, you never have him. I see very little sense of deep need, desperate need today in our churches. And then we're lukewarm, as was indicated a while ago, a little too hot to be cold, a little too cold to be hot. And you will observe that my Lord said, I'd rather you'd be cold. I can understand why you would say, I'd rather you'd be hot. But he also said, I'd rather you'd be cold. Isn't it better to be a warm church than a cold church? No. Isn't it better to be a warm Christian than a cold Christian? No. 
Jesus said, I'd rather you make no pretense at all than to be a lukewarm Christian. Tepid, it nauseates me, and I'm about to spew you out of my mouth, and that's what he did with Laodicea, you saw that. And that's what he is going to do today with institutional Christianity if we don't soon have a revival. He said, be zealous, which means boiling. You're lukewarm. Come to a boil. I've been in churches that have simmered for 25 years and never have boiled yet. Come to a boil and repent. And his invitation is, first of all, repent. And if they won't do it, and Laodicea didn't, he has one other proposition to make. If anyone hear my voice and open the door, I'll come in. I'll be his guest and he'll be my guest. Dr. Campbell Morgan says he excommunicated the whole church and started over with one man, and that, I think, is where we are today. I believe that institutional Christianity, unless we soon have a visitation from on high, is going to be spewed out of the Lord's mouth. It's going on into the big world, church, world, state, to head up finally under Antichrist. While my Lord is calling out people who mean business, wherever he can find them. Anyway. And that's what revival is. Revival opens us toward God on the Godward side and then toward man, and that's where the evangelism comes in. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Get me open on the Godward side, as Dr. Phillips puts it in his splendid introduction to one of his translations. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways. That's evangelism. Sinners shall be converted unto thee. But first, get me right. You see, all the wonderful things that we read about in the Acts of the Apostles were not a thing in the world but the outflow and the overflow of the inflow of the Holy Spirit. Just that. Nothing else will produce it. And uh, nothing else can uh, uh, secure the blessing that comes from just the moving of the Holy Spirit through God's people. When I was a little boy, my father used to take me to an old mill that was operated by a water wheel. This stream would flow over the big wheel, and the big wheel would turn the other wheels, and the mill was in operation. Now suppose the miller would come down some morning and there wasn't enough water to turn the wheel. How foolish he would be to strain and strive trying to make the wheel go round. How foolish to call in the neighbors and try to make the wheel go round. But I can tell you what he could do. He could go up the creek and get things out of the way and clear out the channel. And then the water would flow and the wheel would turn and the mill would operate and he'd be back in business. I go up and down the country. I have been this fall in church after church too many uh, in a row. But uh, I can't take it easy in a time like this. And I have seen educational directors and pastors and music men and Sunday school superintendents <clears throat> puffing and blowing and straining and striving, trying to make the wheels go around. They don't go around. And I have said what you need to do is go up the creek and get sin out of the lives of the people. And then when the channel is cleared, the blessing will flow. But we'll do everything else but that. We'll put on study courses. We'll put on drives. We'll put on all sorts of evangelistic crusades and they're good. And they'll save some souls. But God begins with his own people. If my people. That's where God starts. I'd like to ask you tonight. And I know you're the cream of the crop of this good church. But let me ask you what I ask everywhere I go. 
When have you been up the creek in your own life? Is there anything up there that checks the inflow and the outflow of the Spirit of God? Is there a wrong attitude, a spirit of criticism? Is there pride? Is there self-righteousness? Oh, there could be a hundred things wrong. Real revival begins with that. Your trouble and mine is we haven't been in a real revival. Oh, we've seen some local ones, but we haven't seen a great visitation of God such as in the Wesleyan revival or the early days of our nation or the Welsh revival or the Shantung revival. And now the greatest revival going on anywhere is in Indonesia, the fifth largest nation on earth. And over there it bears all the marks of old-fashioned revival. All night prayer meetings, confession of sin, restitution, getting right with people, those Christians with just a few verses of Scripture memorized, going out trying to win others. Miracles are happening. Demons are being cast out. It's Acts of the Apostles all over again. And sometimes I wonder whether God's saying to America, all right, you've had it. I'll start somewhere else with people who are simple and don't know much but are willing to begin with the elementals and the fundamentals again. You've had your day. It could be, beloved. It just could be, and it looks very much like it just now. We have a word that's coming into use nowadays, open-endedness. And uh, every Christian ought to be open toward God for strength and open toward men for service. Open on the Godward side, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. Open on the manward side, from within him shall flow rivers of living water. Have you ever watched a large electric sign where some of the letters were out and some were quivering because the connection was bad? How many churches are like that? How many do you have in your church that are shining brightly and some are out and some are quivering? And they've not been plugged into the socket of divine power like they ought to be. I tell you, we've got nothing to apologize for. I get so weary of going to places to hold meetings where they begin to apologize for it before it ever starts and say, well, there'll be a lot of competition this week. Monday night, the circus is coming to town. Tuesday night, the sons and daughters of I will arise are having a little get-together. Thursday night, they're going to discuss how to raise African violets at the ladies' club. <laughs> Friday night, there's the ball game, and of course, there's always Ed Sullivan. <laughs> so it's a bad week for the revival. I get so tired of that. I don't believe ever that God ever meant for his church to take a back seat to any sideshow that ever blew into town. We were here first, after all. I'd like to see something happen one of these days and make the other crowd say it's going to be a rough week. There's a revival going on. Why shouldn't it be that way? Do you know that during the great Welsh revival that, that even athletic events the, had to close up and theaters and everything? Now, there isn't anything wrong with good athletics, but God had the priority for once. And people just lost their taste for everything else. And I think it's going to take something that terrific in America, because one of these little harmless revivals such as we have these days will never do it. 
And we don't have to worry about the outflow in our church life if there's a powerful inflow. A mighty rushing stream will make its own channel and sweep all our little dikes aside and inundate the community and flood the world. Might give some religious engineers nervous prostration because it's not according to their plans and specifications. The Welsh revival broke over all the riverbanks. And the church at Jerusalem had become an ingrown fellowship, stagnant pool. God sent persecution, scattered them all directions. We're the salt of the earth. But we've got too many million dollar salt sellers today called churches sitting around all over America that ought to be salt shakers. I like the word salt shaker better. Million dollar depositories of the truth when they ought to be dispensers of the truth. Uh, God wants to shake us out into the need of this world. We're sold after all, but we're so fastidious. We don't like to be rubbed into the corruption of this decadent society. We don't like that. My father had a little grocery store in the hills of North Carolina. And I always liked for the, uh, to see him uh, open up the garden seeds when the box came in for the next year's planting. And how pretty those little packages were, the beans and the beets and the tomatoes and all the rest of them. But we wouldn't have had a bite to eat if those seeds had stayed in the pretty little packages. They had to be opened up and put in the dirty old ground and die. And come up. Now, I know I've mixed my metaphors tonight, but it all comes back to this. Christ is the great gatherer. He's gathered us out, and he's coming to gather us up to make us his jewels, as Malachi puts it. And meanwhile, we are gatherers with him, winners of souls, fishers of men. And if we don't gather, we scatter abroad. And what great business this is. The children's song, when he cometh, when he cometh to make up his jewels, comes from Malachi as its source. I heard years ago of a bishop who was sitting on a train looking out the window wrapped in serious thought as I suppose bishops ought to be. And a traveling salesman bounced in, one of these fellows who just read how to win friends and influence people and was all full of himself and sat down beside the bishop said, I'm a traveling man. And the bishop reflected that we're all pilgrims and strangers, and he said, so am I. The salesman said, I'm in the jewelry business. And the bishop thought of Malachi and said, that's interesting, so am I. The salesman said, I'm in partnership with my father. And the bishop remembered that we are laborers together with God and said, that's interesting, so am I. And the salesman said, I just can't wait to get home and turn in a good report. And the bishop said, shake, brother, so do I. <laughs> oh, won't it be great one of these days when we're taken up? Or will we be embarrassed in his presence? I have come up here, dear friends, because somehow, although I am about as tired as I have ever been after this fall, I somehow couldn't say no. And I, as far as I personally am concerned, I don't know exactly what the Lord had in mind for all this. But will you let me say to you, after 54 years of preaching, 
that seven years ago I lay at the point of death and uh, people were praying for me all the way from Moody Bible Institute to the Southern Baptist Evangelistic Conference where I was supposed to be speaking in Florida. Billy Graham and his staff in Miami. Billy called up my wife that night and said, uh, we just had prayer and I said to Ruth, oh, I think the Lord will let Vance live a little longer to get up some sermons for the rest of us to preach. <laughs> I do know one thing, that the night when I was so very ill, the head nurse on the floor, a wonderful Christian, said, I want to take his case tonight. She had worked all day. When I looked out from that old oxygen tent, when she wasn't looking at me, she was praying. You like to have somebody around like that in a time like that. And I stuck my hand out and said, I haven't got breath enough to pray, but let's claim the promise if two of you agree. And we did. And uh, I got well so fast that it broke all the rules. I had a, a blood clot on my lung following surgery. And uh, I believe with all my soul that the Lord stepped up the process and touched me. He gave me a postscript. I don't know how long it'll run. It's run seven years. And when you're running on a postscript, it gives you a different perspective. It's like when your money's running out. You have to be careful how you spend it. But I may live longer than you. It would be interesting to know, I often wonder, who will be the next in this crowd to check out. It could be the youngest one here. And somehow I have a feeling, I said then, Lord, I, I, I want to make the rest of it count. I don't want to go anywhere where they don't mean business. I have no time to waste, and they don't either. I don't want to go somewhere where just as a mere formality, they have to have a preacher from somewhere. So they ask me, I want to go where there's an urgency and a concern and a burden. And I've tried to follow that, whether the church be a small one or a large one. That's incidental. And so I ask tonight, oh, in this great old city with so, such a tradition through the past, and your own tradition. I don't believe anything's going to do the job today except utter, holy desperation sold out to Jesus Christ. Ordinary measures won't do it these days, dear friends. The trouble is the situation's desperate, but we're not. We're trying to do it on a business-as-usual basis, and business isn't as usual. Nothing's as usual. You know that. We're faced with anarchy in the world, apostasy in the professing church, apathy in the true church, antichrist around the corner, Armageddon, the appearing of our Lord, and behind all those A's, one terrific awake to righteousness and sin not. It is high time to awake out of sleep. Awake thou that sleepest and rise from the dead and Christ shall give thee life. I don't see how any preacher or any Christian can take it easy in a time like this. I could. 
I'm old enough all to be sitting in a rocking chair waiting for my social security check and reminiscing about the good old times. They weren't so good anyhow. I'm not about to do it as long as I can climb into a pulpit because the need is too urgent and the time is too short. And I beg of you, remember that you're in the biggest business in this world and Jesus Christ is going to put these pieces together one of these days. We're seeing them right now. Israel, Russia, world lawlessness, you're seeing all the pieces being assembled by an unseen hand. I don't know when they're going to be put together. I don't know anything about the dates. But we ought to have sense enough to distinguish the pieces and realize that God is fitting it together. It's an exciting time in which to live. I'm enjoying it to the fullest. I have the best response today from young people I've ever had in all my years of preaching. I don't go around over the country lambasting teenagers. We've got some good-looking, red-blooded young people today who are trying to live for Jesus Christ all over America. They didn't create this situation. They inherited it. And I get a better response than I ever had in my life because they want it laid on the line. They don't want a preacher to stand in the pulpit and mark the prices down to get some youngster to run down a church aisle. They know we're in a mess. And they lead the way. They, they are the avant-garde today of any true spiritual movement. And so I appeal to you young folks, you are really the hope of this situation. To move ahead and demonstrate to this world what a Gideon's band can do in a time like this. God bless you. It's good to be with you. If you have time in the midst of all your praying to remember this peripatetic parson, rambling around over the country. Sometimes I wonder whether I'm abounding in the work of the Lord or just bounding in the work of the Lord. <laughs> but remember him, please. God bless you. Let us pray. Father, we thank thee for this great old church. We thank thee for the men of God that have labored in it in times past. We thank thee for our good brother DeBrine and the work he's doing here now. We hear about it, hear him. Uh, and all over the land he's heard. We thank thee for the testimony that goes out from Ruggles Street. We pray, our Father, that thou would help us to realize that halfway measures won't do the job these days. That uh, if we're 85% faithful to thee, we're not faithful at all. And that we're unprofitable servants as long as we just do our duty. Thou hast said so thyself. God, give us a devotion to Jesus Christ above and beyond the call of duty. Do a wonderful thing as this church looks out to its next venture if Jesus tarries. Of course, the greatest longing of our heart is come, Lord Jesus. We'll settle for that any time, Lord. But if thou dost tarry, give a great new ministry to this fellowship and help thy people everywhere today who believe the truth and preach it and people who are trying to live for Jesus in a time like this. Guide us evermore by thy counsel and thy grace. And help us to live to thy glory and the good of men, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to Vance Havner. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Saturday and Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.